that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds to Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Thresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Asherus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The, young, the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for them. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let, lo- let royal robes be brought and that the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise, friend, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Asher said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and the attendants of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that, they, that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Asherus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. 
And the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. That was great reading. Serious, long passage, but we're, um, we're getting to the, the main part of our story here in Esther. The plot's really thickening. Um, Leanne earlier was saying, whenever she came up, um, that this has been great going through the book of Esther. She's been really enjoying it. Um, Andrew's been doing a good job preaching it. She didn't put any pressure on me, obviously. But it's nice that Andrew's left me when he's, he's gone over to East. He's left me with three chapters just to cover today, which is nice of him. But we're going to get through it. Um, and just to start off with, I thought I would ask this. Um, it's, it's really important, isn't it, sometimes to know who's in charge. There are times in life it's really important to know who's in charge. Think about being on an expedition, maybe climbing a mountain somewhere, and the fog descends around you. You can't see more than three feet in front of you. It's important to know who's in charge. Who's the one who knows the way? Who's the one who can lead you to safety? You're lying on a hospital bed, awaiting life-saving surgery. It's vitally important that you know who is in charge. Who is the one who's going to be performing this surgery on you? Who's the one that you're going to trust in this case? You're going through a global pandemic. It's important to know who's in charge. Who is leading us? Who's making the big decisions? Like when it's safe for restrictions to be lifted or when our business can open up again or when I can have friends in my home. Knowing who's in charge really matters. And we want to know that the one who's in charge, they know what they're doing. They are in control, and they have our best intentions at heart. Knowing that instills confidence. It gives us hope for the future. It brings a peace amidst all the circumstances that we might find ourselves in. Leanne said, the story of Esther is a story where God seems absent. A story where his name is never mentioned. Prayer is never mentioned, really. You don't see anything mentioned about the law. There's no supernatural things happening. God just seems absent. But here's what a commentator, Landon Dowden, said, which I think is really helpful in approaching this book, especially in chapters like this. The big idea that Esther wants us to see is that with God, the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. The presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. Esther is a book showing us who is in charge But God is sovereignly in control of this world. He's in charge of every moment, in every place, at all times. Everything that happens fits into the wider story of redemptive history that God is orchestrating and directing. And if we're a Christian this morning, it matters for us to know this. Because things in life are hard at times. We face challenges. We face hostility living in this world. The road ahead in life seems obscure. The fog and the mist sometimes descend and we can't see where we're going. But it's important for us to know who's in charge because 
when we read verses like Romans 8, verse 28, you know that famous verse? It isn't just some feel-good, pick-me-up verse which flies in the face of our experience here in life. We can know that it's the truth. We can be sure that in every circumstance, the good and the bad, in every situation, every happy blessing and every challenge and trial, God is indeed working all things out for the good of those who love him. And for those who are called according to his purposes, he is working all things out for our good and for his. Knowing who's in charge is really important. Knowing who's in charge of this universe and our lives really matters. As we come to Esther 5 to 8, let me bring us up to speed with where we've been at in our story so far. There are some pretty big players in this story. One of them is King Ahasuerus, and he is the one who is ruling pretty much over the known world at this time. His kingdom, it appears invincible, and his word is law. And in chapter 2, we're introduced to two of God's people living in this invincible or seemingly invincible kingdom of the world. We're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, two Jews, two of God's people, and we see their weakness and their vulnerability. Mordecai, he is a a civil servant. He's working at the king's gate in the city of Susa, and he's the legal guardian of Esther, a young and beautiful Jewish girl who is swept right up into the center of this vast worldly empire when she becomes the queen. Now, a key event, which is really key for our part of the story today, happens in chapter 2. It's when Mordecai, he catches wind of an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus. He tells Queen Esther, who passes that information on to the king, the plan is foiled, the men were killed, and the event was recorded in the king's book of chronicles of these memorable deeds. But Mordecai was never rewarded. His heroics were forgotten about. And in chapter 3, we meet Haman, the villain in the story, the one that we boo and hiss when he's on the scene. He's an Agagite, and we saw a couple of weeks ago that that means he's an ancient enemy of God's people. He's promoted Haman to this position of power in this empire. He's the prime minister, effectively. And he's an evil, scheming man who manipulates the king into issuing an edict which gives the go-ahead for the mass genocide of of the Jewish nation, of God's people. All because Haman hates this Jew, Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to him, and this really ticks Haman off. And so he wants to kill all of the Jews, not just Mordecai the Jew. And in chapter 4 last week, Mordecai, when he hears about this edict, he's distraught. He tears his clothes in despair. And he passes, passes a message to Esther in the palace, urging her to use her position as queen to intervene for her people. We get those famous verses that Leanne mentioned in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Mordecai says to Esther, Do not think to yourself, Esther, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. This edict It stands for you too, Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther 
tells Mordecai to get the people to hold a fast on her behalf, all in preparation for her to go before the king. She hasn't been welcomed into his presence for over 30 days, and to go before the king uninvited is worthy of death. She knows this. And as chapter 4 finishes, we get the cliffhanger of all cliffhangers. Esther says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Brilliant storytelling. It's an amazing story. There's humor in it, dark humor. There's uh, times where we're left wondering what is going to happen next. And we've been left since chapter 4 with bated breath, if you don't know the story, to see what will happen to Esther as she goes before the king. And that's where we pick up our story today. So I want you to notice something, just one more thing before we get into this. I want you to notice how the events in chapters 1 to 4, they happened over a nine-year period. But the, the events that we're reading of today in chapters 5 to 8, they happened over just two days, 48 hours. So everything is slowed down. The writer is saying, this is crucial. Don't go off and make a cup of tea right now. Keep your eyes focused on the screen. You don't want to miss this. And I want you to see as well in our story just how many reversals there are. Tables being turned. That's a key thing in this part of the story. So our episode opens in chapter 5 with Esther putting on her royal robes. She's dressed to impress And the idea is to get noticed by the most important man in the room, King Ahasuerus. He's sitting on his throne in the inner court. Now, we need to understand just how dangerous this is for Esther. For her to go before the king, uninvited, as we said, is worthy of death. The tension is building. The king, he sees Esther there in the court. We hold our breath wondering what is going to happen next. In verse 2, we get relief. She wins favor in his sight and he extends the golden scepter for her to touch, a sign signifying his favor. Notice how the king addresses her as Queen Esther here as well. She's called Queen Esther 14 times in this book. And what's interesting is that 13 of those times happen after chapter four. There's a shift going on here in what's what's happening. Now, the king asks Queen Esther, what do you want, Esther? Whatever it is, even up to half my kingdom and it's yours. He's in a good mood. He's saying, try me, Esther. Anything you want, try me. And we're all saying, go for it, Esther. This is the big moment. But her request in verse 4, it surprises us. If it please the king, let the king and Haman change the edict and save my people. No, that's not what she says. If it please the king and Haman, come to a feast that I have prepared. And the king is thinking, well, this must be important, so we must go quickly. And he gathers up Haman, and they head for this feast. And the scene cuts to this unlikely dinner party with the king, the queen, and Haman. They eat, they drink, they have a great time. And after dinner, the uh, the king turns to Esther again and says, what is your wish, Esther? Up to half the kingdom, and it's yours. And again, we're thinking, go for it, Esther. Seize the day. But verse 7 and 8 She surprises us again. She invites them to yet another dinner party the following day. And as the tension mounts, we're asking, what's the big plan here, Esther? What are you doing? Do you even know what you're doing? In verse 9, we see Haman. He heads home, having had a brilliant day. 
He is in good spirits. He's joyful and glad of heart because he has had a day to remember. And he really wants to tell people about it. But his mood quickly changes when he sees Mordecai, his enemy, in the king's gate. And true to form, Mordecai doesn't get up. He doesn't tremble before Haman. And this really annoys Haman because what matters most to him is the approval and the adulation of people. And when he doesn't get it from Mordecai, he's filled with fury. But he restrains himself and he heads home. He knows that Mordecai's day and his people's day is soon to come. The date for their destruction is already in the diary. Now, it's often said that we see people's true character. We see what people are really like behind closed doors at home. And if that's true, well, Haman comes across as the most self-absorbed, conceited man you could ever imagine. He gathers his friends and his family around for the ultimate in boring nights. He gloats about himself for the entire evening, painful to listen to. Verse 11, look at it. He recounts the splendor of his riches. We've seen the king do this already in chapter 1. He tells of the number of his sons as if his wife needed to be reminded. All the promotions and the honors he's received from the king. He's a man at the top of this empire and he wants people to know it. And as if that isn't enough, Queen Esther had no one else come to a feast with the king apart from me. It was just me, the king and his wife. How important must I be? And you know, we're doing the same thing again tomorrow. He is not only that most monumental name dropper, but he's also the most oblivious third wheel, isn't he? Romantic male with the king and the queen, I get to go too. How important am I? Haman's world revolves around himself. He thinks that he is the one in charge. And as we laugh at Haman, we're meant to see him as this pompous fool. But as we laugh at him, we're meant to laugh at ourselves as well. We're meant to see something of ourselves in him because it's true of me too. I'm so often worried about what others think of me. I'm so often motivated by the praise and the recognition of other people. The desires of Haman's self-absorbed heart are so often the desires of mine. Haman thinks the world revolves around himself and so often I think the world revolves around me too. But even with all of this, Haman is still not happy because Mordecai is stealing his joy. He's poisoning his happiness. And his wife and his friends say, why don't you get rid of him then? Why don't you build a big gallows, 75 foot high? That's about 50 cubits here. Build a huge gallows. And then in the morning, tell the king that you want Mordecai hanged on it. And then you can enjoy yourself. You can have this feast with the king. Sounds like a perfect plan to Haman. So he has the gallows built. And at the end of chapter 5, it looks like things are going from bad to worse for God's people. Mordecai is doomed in the morning. God's people are still facing destruction. And we're left questioning Esther's wisdom and her decision making. What is Esther doing here? Why is she not taking her chance? But it just so happens... That on that night, the king is tossing and turning in his bed, unable to get any sleep. It actually says in the original translation, sleep was taken from him. Who's taking the king's sleep on this night? This is one of those things that happens in this book that 
no human could have orchestrated or planned. It's one of those just-so-happened moments we often find in the book of Esther. And the king can't sleep, and in his vanity, he asks for the Persian version of, the, you know that big book from This Is Your Life, the big red book? He wants it brought out and read to him. Maybe so that he can hear some nice stories about himself, which might help him to nod off again. And they bring the book along and they ask him, these people, which bit should we read, your majesty? Ah, any old bit you choose. And they just so happen to open up the book at the one page which tells the story of Mordecai saving the king's life, the story that we heard of in chapter two. It was recorded all those years ago, but it's been forgotten about ever since. And the king says, ah, yes, I remember that, as if he did. How did I reward that man? The Persians, they were all about these lavish rewards for people who'd been faithful to the empire. It, it served as a bit of an incentive for everyone else to be uh, those who were looking for the good of the empire as well and serving the empire. So how did I reward this Mordecai? And they say in verse 3, well, nothing was done, your majesty. It's so interesting, isn't it? All these years have passed. Only now is it brought to the king's attention after this sleepless night. And the king basically says, who's in the court? Which essentially means I need to make a decision and I can't make it for myself. We know what King Ahasuerus is like. He's done this time and time again in this book. And it just so happens that Haman has got the early train in to work that morning. Looking to make use of his new gallows. And the king invites him in. Haman! How are you doing? Great to see you. Good night's sleep? Me? Ah, not so good. But, you know, anyway, verse 6, tell me, Haman, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And we get this fascinating insight into Haman's heart. Look at verse 6. Who would the king delight to honor more than me? This is what Haman is like, but it's like what we're all like too. Haman's heart is all about him. He is at the center of his world. It's all about him. And he says, who would the king want to honor and glorify more than me? Haman's heart is all about himself. And look what he says in verse 8. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. No one could wear the royal robes of the king. It was treason unless the king had agreed to it. And bring the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's nobles, most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman wants to be king. He wants everyone looking at him. He's like an overinflated balloon. And just watch how the writer takes a big pen in these next verses and just punctures that balloon in the most ironic way. Look at verse 10. The king says, what a brilliant idea, Haman. I'm so glad you came into work early this morning and I got to ask for your advice. So hurry, get the robes and the horse and you, you be the man to do everything you said for Mordecai, the Jew. What an amazing reversal. Not what Haman is expecting at all. And you can imagine the look on poor Haman's face. He's got no choice. He has to do what the king has said. And you can imagine Mordecai. Think of him sitting at his desk in the king's gate. 
wearing the usual plain suit that he would wear to work every day, cup of coffee in his hand. It's just a normal day for him. But then everything changes in an instant. All of a sudden, Mordecai is being paraded around the city in glory, transformed. And I love verse 12. Mordecai, in his humility, after all this has happened, he just goes back to his desk and puts his suit back on and gets back to work. But Haman, ah, the poor lad, he's had a shocker of a day. He runs home, tail between his legs. He tells his wife and his friends what's happened. And in chapter 6, at the end of it, we get the most interesting insight. Because look what his wife and his friends say. They see the writing on the wall. We see this in the Bible at times. When God's uh, people who aren't even part of the people of God, they see who is going to be victorious. They know who's going to win the day. Because what his wife and friends say is, if Mordecai is of the Jewish people, then you are doomed, Haman. Then they know this isn't going to end well for him. Haman's power is on tender hooks right now. He's destined for downfall. Things are unraveling before him. And verse 14, it, it feels for the first time with Haman like he's just a passenger in the story now. Like he's not the one in control anymore. He's hurried off to the next dinner party with Esther and the king. And we're back in the palace in chapter 7, a familiar scene. But this time, Esther senses her time has come. Change in the winds. King again asks Esther, what do you want, Queen Esther? Up to half of the kingdom and it's yours. The third time that he said this public to her, in public to her, and, he, and she knows at this stage that he can't go back on his word now. He will have to do what she asks. And so Queen Esther says, please spare my life and please spare the lives of all my people. We see the echo of the edict in chapter three, destroy, kill annihilate. She uses Haman's very language here. And the king, he is astonished. He can't believe this, even though he was part of this edict as well. And he says, who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? And here is Esther's moment where she sticks the knife in a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. You can imagine Haman sinking back in his seat, wanting the ground to swallow him up. So unbelievably awkward for him. He's nowhere to hide here. And he's terrified before the king and the queen. The king, he rises in his fury from the wine drink and he heads out into the garden because he has a problem here too. He's complicit in this. He's the one who promoted Haman. He's the one who gave his seal of approval to this edict. This isn't a good look for this king. He can't go back on his word. This kingdom is all about saving face, remember. And Haman, in his desperation, he loses all sense of what is lawful in this kingdom. He stays to beg for his life from Queen Esther. But in this, he's made a massive error of judgment. Because Persian law, it stated that no man, unless he was a eunuch, no man was allowed to be left alone with a woman of the king's reign. And even more than that, in the king's presence, no one was allowed within seven steps of a royal concubine. The penalty for this was death. And as the king comes back in, Haman is falling before Queen Esther. What a reversal here. Mordecai, 
He refused to fall and bow before Haman. And now Haman is falling before Queen Esther, one of the Jews. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Now he can't seriously have thought that Haman was going to violate his queen here and then. But the king sees that Haman has handed him a convenient resolution to his dilemma. Because he can get Haman for treason now. He can dispatch of him, save Esther, and he can reverse the edict against Esther's people. And in that very moment, security put handcuffs on Haman. And in one of those humorously dark moments, one of the eunuchs in attendance, Harbona, pipes up. I don't know if you've heard, O king, but there's a gallows, a pretty big one. And it's actually the one that Haman prepared for Mordecai, the man who saved your life. It's not too far away as well. It's just in Haman's backyard. No one's been hanged or impaled on it yet. I just thought you might like to know. Hang him on it, rages the king. And after that, the wrath of the king abated at the end of chapter 7. The instrument of execution which Haman intended for Mordecai in another dramatic reversal becomes the instrument of execution for himself. And on that day, King Ahasuerus gives Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. That just means all that he owned, his wealth, his estate, his business. He gives it all to Esther, who then passes it on to humble Mordecai. He's exalted before the king. Another great reversal in our story. Whatever promotion Mordecai missed out on before, he doesn't miss out on now. Because the king takes off his signet ring, the one that he had given to Haman, remember in chapter 3, as a sign of his approval of Haman's evil plan. And he gives it to Mordecai. And Esther sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now instinctively, we all breathe a huge sigh of relief and relax. And we might expect that to be the end of the story. But we need to remember that the edict which has gone out against God's people across this Persian empire, it's still stands. Something has changed in the capital in Susa, but nothing has changed in the wider Persian empire yet. It will. We will see soon enough it will, but there is still drama to come in our story. But as we come to land this morning, as we said at the start, it's important for us to know who's really in charge. And the writer wants us to know who runs and who controls the empire of the world? Knowing this really matters. It matters for the people living in the Persian Empire back then, both Jews and otherwise. And it matters for us today as well. We might look at this story and all that goes on and just see a string of coincidences here. Queen Esther fasted and prayed at the end of chapter 4. And it just so happened that all of these things fell in place for her to go before the king for her to explain the plight of her people, for, Mordecai, or for Haman to be exposed as the evil, manipulative man that he is, and for the king to be able to uh, do away with Haman, to prepare the way for uh, the Jews to be saved in the end. All of these just so happen moments in this book, in these chapters. The writer wants us to see that there is something else going on here. Someone else who is in charge and orchestrating things behind the scenes. Remember who Esther and Mordecai belong to. The God of their people is the God of Abraham, of Jacob, of Isaac. The God who made binding covenant promises with his people. 
to remember them, to be faithful to them, to rescue them from their affliction in their time of need. Mordecai knows this. Remember what he said to Esther in chapter 4, 14. Salvation will come, Esther. God will rescue his people. I don't know how he's going to do it or where deliverance will come from, but it may be in this time. This may be the very reason you're on the throne, Esther, for such a time as this for God's people. But even if it's not, God's plans and purposes for his people will never be thwarted. He will never fail in keeping his covenant because he is the one in charge. And this story in Esther, this story of salvation, it's just one that points us to the greater and overarching story of the Bible. The gospel, God fulfilling his covenant promises to us, his people in Jesus. Because just as Esther went into the very presence of the king as a representative for her people to plead for their salvation, so too does Jesus act as our representative before God, entering into the very throne room of heaven on our behalf to plead for our salvation. And just as a death in the book of Esther, the death of Haman allowed the wrath of the king to be abated at the end of chapter 7, opening the way for God's people to be rescued from destruction, as we will see, so too does the death of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, satisfy God's righteous wrath against sin. His death offers the way for our sins to be forgiven. He takes the punishment that we deserve for rejecting God's rule and authority in our lives. We're trying to run our lives on our own without God in the picture. Jesus' death offers us the way to be reconciled to God again. And in the same way, we see a public spectacle being made of Haman, the enemy of God's people, hanged on his own gallows for all of the city to see. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God made a public spectacle of the devil and all the forces of evil. Because on that day, on that day of the cross, the devil was defeated. The powers of darkness were broken forever. And just as we see Mordecai, humble Mordecai, vindicated and exalted to the highest place of honor in the Persian Empire in chapter 7 and 8, the one who the king delights to honor, so too in the gospel we see Jesus Christ resurrected to life again after three days in the tomb, the one who God delights to honor, vindicated and exalted by his father to the highest place in the universe. Given the name that is above every name, King of kings and Lord of lords, Esther reminds us who's in charge of this world. It reminds us that Jesus is the one who sits enthroned in power today, alive, governing all things in this universe. He is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It matters that we know this. Because if this is true, as God's people, we can be sure that our salvation is secure. Our salvation is eternally secure in Jesus. We can be absolutely sure that the plans and purposes that God has for us, his people, will never be thwarted. His good and perfect plans will prevail. We can endure through times of suffering and struggle. 
We can press on when the road ahead seems difficult or obscure because we know that God is working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. All of our lives have meaning and purpose in preparing us for glory because Jesus Christ is in charge. He rules and he reigns. It doesn't mean that things won't be difficult. It doesn't mean that at times we'll have doubts along the way in this life. But it does mean that we can always trust God to be faithful. Sustain us and strengthen us by his grace each day on this earth as we journey towards glory with him forever. He has given us Jesus Christ, his own son, the very thing that we need most in life, a saviour. So as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32, will he not with him graciously give us all things as well? We're believers this morning. Esther is a book which should encourage us, give us strength, comfort us through whatever we're going through in life right now. It gives us real hope to know that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is in charge, but it also gives us a real challenge too. Because if Jesus is the one in charge of all things in the universe, then he demands and he deserves to be the one in charge of all things in our lives as well. We don't keep certain parts of our lives to ourselves and give Jesus authority in this part. No, Jesus, he is in charge of all of our lives. He is Lord over all. Lord over our finances. Lord over our family life. Lord over the relationships that we have. Lord over the things that we watch. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, then it should change everything about the way that we live. And we say the words with Paul of Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He is the one in charge, not me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is all true. Jesus is in charge of all things, but if he isn't in charge of your life, if you haven't accepted him as your Lord and Savior yet, then there is a real warning in this passage too. We should be warned by Haman and his downfall because those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord, those who stand against God and his people, stand in enmity to God, enemies of his, they will not stand when Jesus Christ returns to this earth in judgment. Haman's downfall in the book of Esther foreshadows the downfall of every human being who lives like him, who rejects God, who lives as if they are the center of this world, as if the world revolves around them. Christ as Lord. Jesus' death and resurrection It offers the way for the story to be turned in its head, for your story to be transformed. Gospel offers you hope because there is forgiveness and acceptance for all those who put their trust in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. There is hope of life now and there is hope of life forever in eternity. So will you accept Jesus Christ today? Will he be Lord over all things in your life? It's important that we know who's in charge. It really matters to all of us.
Let me pray for us now as we finish. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge and the encouragement that there is in your word. For how, as we read your word, we understand who we really are. It gives us an awareness of our meaning and our purpose here on earth. That life is only found in Jesus Christ in relationship with him. That the only way that we can have hope for our future even is if we accept that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things, that he is the one who is sustaining all things, holding all things together, and that all things are for him, for him and for his glory. In accepting that, we see and we understand who we really are. We understand our purpose. We understand the place that we have here in this earth and what you are doing and the plans that you have for us. Lord, I I pray for anyone today who is a follower of Jesus Christ who is going through hard times at the moment, Lord, who's struggling, who's maybe unsure of how you are leading and guiding them. Maybe they they feel at the moment, Lord, that you're just completely absent. You've left them on their own. Father, I pray that they would know today that you promise in your word to never forsake us or leave us. That we can never uh, be lost from your grip and from your hand. Father, would that give them encouragement today? Would it help them to look to Jesus, to help them to see him on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things, his plans for them, good and perfect, plans that can be trusted. Lord, if there is anyone here who's not yet put their trust in Jesus, I pray, Lord, that Today might be the day, and today might be even the, the start of this journey that they go, go on to discovering who Jesus Christ really is. Opening your word and to understanding what Jesus Christ has done for them. Giving his life for them. Taking the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and accepted by you. So that we can know life forever with you. Father, I pray that each of us would recognize and accept and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our whole lives. Pray all these things in your son Jesus' precious name.